Chapter Nineteen of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Nineteen. The ballroom of the Hotel La Salle had been carefully prepared for the opening of the Vice Investigating Commission sessions. A corps of janitors had been active for two days, introducing folding chairs, cuspidors, tables, and wastebaskets. Chairs of varying degrees of importance had been assembled for the witnesses, attorneys, distinguished visitors, and members of the press. The Vice Investigating Commission had been appointed by the Governor of the State. It was comprised of ten members, including its chairman, Judge Bazine. The press, with its instinctive dramaturgy, had centered its comments around the single figure of Bazine. The nine state senators, who, as a result of political wire-pulling, had wormed their way into the commission, found themselves lost in the shadow of Bazine. It was the Bazine Commission. As the time for its sessions approached, the press, having by its own headline reiteration of the man's name impressed itself with the prestige and popularity of Bazine, abandoned itself without further scruples to its convenient mania of simplifications. Thus the preliminary deliberations of the commission were headlined, Bazine to Summon Department Store Heads, Bazine to Plumb Vice Causes, Bazine Charges Dance Hall Evil, the statements elaborately prepared by the nine senators were invariably attributed to the newspaper columns to Bazine. The hopes, plans, fears, threats of the Vice Commission were blazoned to the world as the mingled emotions of Bazine. Photographs of Bazine, his wife, children, and home illumined the papers, and within a week the name Bazine had, in the public mind, become innately synonymous with an immemorial crusade against vice. The crusade itself remained as yet a vague but promising morsel in the city's thought. The newspapers, enabled by the event to indulge themselves more legitimately than usual in discussing the ever-fascinating problem of sex from the unimpeachable standpoint of reform, leaped greedily to the bait, Photographs of young women boarding streetcars and revealing stretches of leg were printed under the caption, Indecent way to board car, says Bazine. Alongside were photographs, less interesting, but vital to the moral of the layout, showing women boarding streetcars without revealing their legs. The caption over them read, Correct way to board car, says Bazine. The text explained that the carelessness and immodesty of young girls, according to Bazine, frequently were the devil's ally, and that the Bazine Commission called upon all young women who had the welfare of the race at heart to board streetcars in the correct way. Photographs of young women in indecent bathing costumes appeared accompanied by denunciations from prominent clergymen and contrasted with editorial indignation to photographs of decent bathing costumes recommended by prominent clergymen, photographs of abandoned young women who affected garter purses, slit skirts, who crossed their legs when they sat down, were offered. 
these were accompanied by outraged pronouncements against such immodesties from prominent statesmen and clergymen a private auxiliary crusade started by another enterprising newspaper resulted in a series of photographs of nude paintings to be seen in the shop windows of the loop and michigan avenue and called for immediate legislation designed to remove this source of moral danger photographs of the deplorably scanty costumes worn by musical comedy choruses and dancers in general photographs pointing out with mute alarm the decline of modesty as instanced in the comparison of the fashions of yesteryear with the fashions of today photographs of dance-hall scenes showing couples amorously embraced cheeks together bodies riveted to each other these and others too numerous to tabulate cried for the reader's indignant attention out of the newspaper columns every conceivable variant of denunciation which might be legitimately accompanied by a photograph of a woman or a group of women received publication in interviews with pious divines alarmed statesmen and serious-minded welfare workers the newspapers convinced by the twenty and thirty percent increases in their weak circulation figures that the crusade was a vital part of the awakened moral sense of the city devoted themselves with heroic disregard of party politics to acclaiming the basine commission basine found himself troubled by his skyrocketing prestige he went to bed the first night as a judicial inquirer into the causes of vice he arose in the morning confronted with the fact that he was a fearless galahad on moral quest before retiring again he found himself a vice solon attacking civic corruption and on the following morning he was basine undaunted flay's vice ring on the day before the opening session he occupied his chambers and tried to dictate his way through a mass of correspondence that had accumulated there were thousands of letters from determined churchgoers mothers fathers brothers sisters all teeming with excited advice prayers for success and redundant congratulations ruth waited with her pencil on her notebook her knee pressed warmly against his thigh and her eyes looking pensively out of the window at the summer day basine had obtained a three weeks vacation in order to devote himself to the work of the commission his words came unevenly as he dictated newspaper headlines glared at him from the desk modern lincoln to free vice slaves basine to determine why girls go wrong basine threatens fearless quiz into resorts his mind was alive with other headlines basine basine the city was throbbing with his name he had managed to maintain a skepticism for several days doris had kept his mind distressingly clear with her comments and her friend levine her words had continued in his thought marvelous george the public is wallowing in an orgy of morbidity i confess it's beyond my pleasantest expectations he had protested she was wrong indignation was being stirred 
people were realizing the menace of underpaid working girls and unlicensed dance halls his sister smiled wearily don't be an ass or you'll spoil it all keep your head clear follow the newspapers and outwit them in cynicism and then levine he recalled the man's words and edited them into a rebuking essay the public is reveling in the salaciousness of nude photographs raw statements and your anti-vice propaganda they're utilizing virtue as a cloak for the sensually tantalizing discussion of immorality their indignation is an excuse by which they apologize for their individual erotic thrills by denouncing evil in others yes the mysterious others identified as vice rings white slavers and immorality in general the whole business is a cunning debauch offered newspaper readers a debauch which enables them to appear to themselves and to each other not as debauchees but as high crusaders behind the banners of Basine. and the good clergymen and the statesmen and the welfare workers rushing into print with revelations of immorality are inspired by nothing more intricate than a desire for publicity and an ambition to pose before the public in the guise of fellow crusaders and civic benefactors their benefactions you see consist of offering the public lurid sex statistics over which it may gloat in secret and in the meantime over these benefactions over these exciting sex statistics and sexy photos and over the people who discuss them and roll them over on their tongue is thrown a protective fog of indignation basine had derived from these talks in his sister's studio an uncomfortable vision but the vision had gradually dissolved in his mind on the day he had awakened to find himself a moral champion promises vice clean-up the dignity and high responsibility of his task had overcome him what appeared to him an authentic fervor mounted in his veins hypnotized by the adulatory excitement surrounding his name he acquired forthwith the characterization foisted on him by the headlines bazine bazine the city throbbed with his name the hope of a great moral rejuvenation was centered upon him another saint patrick was to drive the snakes of evil out of the community another lincoln was to do something something equally ennobling to himself and his fellowmen the change affected his relations with ruth for a month he had been engaged in a species of sinless amour long walks long talks long embraces behind the locked doors of his chambers had resulted in nothing more tangible than a series of headaches and sleepless nights or unusual tenderness towards his piquantly startled wife he had excused his infidelity to ruth while embracing henrietta he regarded his exaggerated interest in his wife as a betrayal of the girl by assuring himself that it was for ruth's own good it lessened his desire for her and thus decreased the moral danger into which their love was leading her in addition to this it was of course 
a convenient substitute for the emotions Ruth's embraces aroused in him, and for the sense of guilt which invariably accompanied these embraces. When he became a crusader, Basine felt a further confusion in his attitude toward Ruth. He sat now attempting to dictate letters. Despite the amiable blur which fame had introduced into his thought, and which for the past two weeks had obscured the details of his day, he found himself studying the situation before him. The situation was Ruth. He would have preferred ignoring it. The scent which came from her summery shirtwaist and the coils of her black hair thrilled him. Her clear, youthful face, the contours of her figure, the familiarity of her eyes, all this was pleasing and satisfying. But the new Basine, the crusader, felt ill at ease. He must explain something to Ruth, explain to her that their love was no more than an ennobling comradeship and must never be more than that, a comradeship which would bring them together in this great cause of moral rejuvenation. He didn't want it put that crudely, but the idea kept repeating itself in his head. He kept thinking of what Doris and her friend Levine would say if they ever found out that in the midst of the vice investigation its chairman had been carrying on with his secretary. It was distasteful and needed immediate attention. He took her hand and Ruth laid down her pencil. She smiled expectantly at him. Since she had first kissed Basine a month ago, she had been trying to understand the situation. The thought of him preoccupied her, and this made her certain she loved him. His caresses aroused her senses and left her wondering what was going to happen. At times she reasoned coolly with herself. She was in love with a married man, and the most she could hope for was to become his mistress and end up by making a fool of herself, or perhaps of both of them. She was, in a measure, grateful for the manner in which he respected her virtue. But with his arms around her, and his keen face alive with passion, and his lips on hers, his reserve struck her as uncomplimentary and illogical. She resented the semi-abandonment of his senses because of the unfulfillment, a physical and spiritual unfulfillment which left her distracted. It appeared to her later, when the distraction ebbed, as an affront to her vanity. She was uncertain when thinking of it coolly whether she would give herself to him. But somehow the affair seemed unreal, at times even a little like some schoolgirl flirtation, because he failed to ask her. She had always prided herself upon her honesty, and spent hours now debating with herself just how much she loved him, and if she loved him at all, and why she loved him. The idea of leaving his employ, however, never occurred to her. The cautious sensualisms of which she had become an excited victim held her. There was in these incompleted maneuverings behind the locked doors a curious fascination. "'What is it, George?' He smiled and shook his head. "'Whew! I'm snowed under!' His hands pushed the correspondence from him. 
You mustn't tire yourself, dear. He nodded, and his face assumed a serious air. I would like to talk over the work. The commission? Yes. Oh, I think it's going to be a wonderful success, George. And you can help me. He squeezed her hand. This was the note he had been searching for in his mind. He hesitated a moment, nevertheless, feeling an irritating incongruity in what he desired to say. But the headlines glaring at him strengthened him. He was Basine, the moral champion. The city was throbbing with his name. A hope centered about his name. "'The work is going to be hard,' he began. I intend to go to the bottom of the thing. The commission, after its hearings, will be able to recommend legislation that will... that will... Yes, I know, George. Wipe out, or at least go a long way toward wiping out. His mind seemed to balk at the sentence. The word immorality withheld itself from his lips. I'll be glad to help where I can, as you know, dear she whispered. "'I've subpoenaed all the department storeheads to bring their books into court, I mean to the hearing, and reveal exactly what the wage scale for shop girls is. I'm convinced it's impossible for a girl to keep decent on six dollars and seven dollars a week.' He thought of the fact that Ruth was receiving thirty dollars a week and grew confused. "'You can help me a lot, dear.' he added hurriedly. Ruth stood up. This standing up had become a habit between them. When they were sitting, holding hands, if she stood up, he would draw her to him, and she would lower herself into his lap. They had developed a series of similar ruses to which they both adapted themselves like well-rehearsed actors, and which had for their object the bringing them into positions convenient for kisses and embraces. As she sat down in his lap, the unhappy thought crossed Basine's mind that he was chairman of a commission sworn to wipe out just such incidents as this from the city's life. He winced, and her arm around his neck felt uncomfortable. But he remembered that both doors were locked, and the image of himself as a crusader partially vanished. They kissed, and his hand slipped down to her side and toyed with the hem of her skirt. "'Do you love me, George? Tell me.' "'Yes. Why do you ask that?' "'Oh, because. Sometimes I think you're so busy that you haven't time to love.' He was pleased by this. Flattered, he answered, "'I have time for nothing else.' Everything else is sort of part of it. My work, the commission, it's all you, dearest. His hand was on her, caressingly. He endeavored to remove the significance of the gesture by patting her knee, as one might pat the head of a little child, and whispering with an involved frankness, You're so nice, darling. They had sat like this before, sometimes for an hour, whispering to each other. Their whispering would go on for a time, even their kisses. This time, however, she murmured unexpectedly, "'Don't, George!' He was surprised. 
Why not? Because we mustn't. But why? Oh, please, don't. Her objection seemed to inspire him in a way her previous silences had failed to do. He grew indignant. Please don't. But why, dearest? I love you. She paused, and he looked at her, aloof arguments in his eyes, as if he were pleading not in his own behalf, but in behalf of a somebody else, a client. His knees were trembling under her weight. The crusade had disappeared. A memory of it lingered, but in an amusing way. He caught a glimpse of the headlines on his desk and grinned. There was something maliciously unreal about life that one could enjoy. Suddenly he felt her soften. Her lips brushed against his ear, and her arm tightened convulsively around him. "'Please, no,' she murmured. Her alarm delighted him. It was a final barrier, this alarm. It enabled him to enjoy the new conquest without having to be logical, without having to go on. Her alarm now was a barrier to be played with for a moment and then utilized. He would stop in a moment, but now he could play with her fear, as if he were intent upon overcoming it. Please, she whispered, don't. It's no use. The final words irritated him. No use? He felt offended, as if he had been trickily defeated in an argument. What was no use? What did she mean? George, please, listen to me. Oh, please. That was better. But it had come just in time. He could retreat now with honor. For an instant a panic had filled him. Impossible to retreat on the explanation, it's no use. Because, well, because the words were a challenge, not an attack. But now it was easy. He stiffened in his chair. Ruth slipped from his lap and stood up, flushed. She straightened her hair and looked away. Basine felt annoyed with her. She had almost taken him by surprise. She had almost surrendered when the tactics of the game called for her to protest and thus cover his retreat by making it the result of her protests. And not of his, well, of his determination not to forget his position. But he would restore the tactic she had momentarily abandoned. "'Excuse me,' he muttered, a plea in his voice. "'I didn't realize.' I didn't realize what I was doing. Forgive me, dearest. He recovered his sense of self-respect that, oddly enough, had deserted him in making this apology. The apology meant that he had ceased only because she had protested too violently, and not because he had been afraid. Ruth listened with a faint smile on her moist lips. She wanted to laugh. I didn't mean anything, really, he was saying. You must forgive me. Come here, please. An air of soothing innocence rose from his voice and manner. He was reassuring her that he wasn't dangerous, that he wouldn't repeat these intimacies. The desire to laugh continued in her. 
Excuse him? For what? The laugh almost left her throat. She had given herself to him, and he had solemnly retreated for no reason at all. She continued to smile. For the first time the distraction his caresses inspired in her was absent. Instead, she felt quite normal. She was becoming indignant but normal, and there was amusement in her anger. She sat down and picked up her pencil. She was amused. She looked at a man who had become almost a stranger and nodded forgiveness. Of course, George, she said. I know you didn't mean anything, but... He frowned. Her tone angered him. She was mocking. Hadn't you better answer some of these? she asked. Basine pursed up his lips importantly. You will be a great help, dear, he answered. Some day I want to talk about something with you. But, but matters are too rushed now. I'm almost snowed under, I swear. This was putting it all on a different basis. He was a busy man. That's why he had retreated. He was needed for other things of vital interest to the community. He felt uncomfortable, despite the dignity of his frown. She was regarding him with placid eyes. He turned to one of the newspapers, whose headlines were proclaiming the plans and threats of Basine. There was the real Basine in the headline. This other one, the one who had fumbled and messed things up with a girl, he ended his thought with annoyance. He despised himself. For a moment he glowered at her. He would stand up and seize her. She would realize, then, what his forbearance for her sake had been. His anger continued in his voice as he resumed the tedious dictation. Dear Governor, Everything is prepared for the opening next Monday. I have arranged special seats for any of your friends who may desire to attend. We are ready to launch an efficient and systematic inquiry into the causes of the vice conditions in our city as well as state. Please. End of chapter 19 Recording by Roger Moline